I'm going to deliver a message now that the Lord has placed upon my heart uh, that uh, I'm trying very much to discern some of the final messages I have the honor and the opportunity to deposit into your lives. Sometimes I don't realize the length of time that Diane and I have had the opportunity of being here, but when you see someone come up to you that's 31 years old and said, you know, Pastor, you dedicated me as a little baby. It's like, wow, okay, I've been here a long time. So we've had that honor and that privilege, and now we want to really deposit some uh, really important messages that I feel from God into your hearts. And so I want to talk about uh, the issue that is presented in Proverbs 24 and verse 16. It says, for though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again. Now, this is in the context by most scholars to be dealing with a battle, a struggle, a temptation, and then someone who is righteous, of good intent, and of a good heart is uh, confronted by the intensity of that temptation and succumbs to it, and as a result, falls. Now, at first, this can seem dismal, depressing, and most discouraging, but really, this verse is to engender in all of our hearts the reality that even in a moment like this, it can be pregnant with hope and anticipation of God's intervention, even when we fall. And so it's not to open the door of becoming passive or apathetic or indifferent or to be presumptuous. No, it's to open the door of saying, how rich you are, God, in mercy and in compassion, how rich and abundant and wealthy you are with grace, and that you're going to bestow that upon me, enabling me to rise up again. And so the title of this message is basically dealing with temptation and rising after a fall. All of us are acutely aware of that in our own life. If you weren't to raise your hand and give testimony or example to that, Holy Scripture reveals that pretty clearly. It's taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 that all of us contend with temptation. It comes knocking at your door and it comes knocking at mine. And there's certain temptations that can easily get the better of us. In Hebrews, in the New Testament, an epistle that's penned by an amazing and anointed Holy Spirit uh, leader. Uh, scholars aren't sure exactly who it is. They think it could be Apollos or Paul, but whatever. It is an inspired book of the New Testament, the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, basically, if you've got something that's weighing you down, lay it aside and lay aside the sin. Haharmatia is the Greek phrase, the specific sin that can easily beset you, that gets the better of you. So what I'd like us to do here, and as well as those of you that are joining us online, if you could just yell out real loud what that particular sin is for you. <laughs> yes. But all of us are aware of it, right? We know the one that we have a propensity to yield to and succumb to, and it grips us, owns us, dominates us, and we feel that in our life. It creates an embarrassment, humiliation. We question the sincerity of our own walk with God. 
In moments like that, again, revisit the scripture that says that though a righteous man or woman falls seven times, they rise again. They rise again. You see, if you fall and you stay there, you lost the war. If you get back up, you lost a battle. Not that you should be indifferent or callous to that reality. Not that you would capitalize on God's mercy or grace. Romans chapter 5 and chapter 6 says, listen, God is abundant in grace, but don't take that lightly and continue sinning and sinning and sinning. But the hope that we do have is that we can get back up. And so we lost a battle. We don't want to lose a lot of battles because you can end up losing a war. But you get back up so that for you, you didn't lose the war. You lost a battle and you're going to learn from that in achieving a greater dependence upon him. Because it's not an issue of willpower, but an empowered will. And God descending upon you with a grace that doesn't overlook sin, but empowers you to overcome it. Now, even in many, many battles of the American Revolution, there were more lost, actually, by General George Washington than were won. In the American Revolution, historians record that very clearly. He lost more battles against the British than he won. But we know who won the war. And there's something about that in your spiritual life and mine that communicates that reality of saying, God, thank you for your faithfulness, and I can get back up. And the sin which easily besets me, be it envy or jealousy or bigotry or having a prejudice of heart, be it anger or immorality or lust or arrogance or pride, and the list can go on and on and on. You know the one that can ensnare you the quickest. When it knocks on the door, you just open the door. Because we all know the spiritual warfare that goes on when it comes to what the Bible describes in Galatians 5 and in Romans 7 about the sinful nature, that nature within us, in our body, soul, and spirit that has this tendency to go toward evil, to violate the commands and the dictates of God, the sinful nature that all of us internally battle with, that internal conflict. And then there's demonic forces that come against your life and mine. Very clear in Ephesians chapter 6, that reality, demonic forces that seek to entice us and deceive us, cunning and pulls us into the wrong direction, takes a lie, stuffs it into the skin of reason so it's palatable to you, seems almost reasonable, logical to you, and you give in. The demonic forces. And then we live in a world that is completely fallen, so dark, its ethics, its mores, its way of approaching life is so polluted, so deceived, so dark, a culture that is set against God. So the spiritual warfare that all of us contend with every day is internal with your sinful nature, external with demonic forces, and a ugly, dark world. Wow. That's quite a battleground. Yet God gives us a hope that in the midst of this conflict and this fight, he's given us provision. 
that we would not only be free and forgiven, but we'd become strong. Ephesians 6.10, we'd be strong in the Lord and in the strength that he will supply us with. To contend with that temptation that comes across your path, knocks on the door, visits your home every single day. There can be a victory that the Lord can give to you and to me. You don't have to be bound in captivity and addicted to it for the rest of your life. You can be free. Now, there is the promise. It begins this way. Sometimes we miss it because we zero in on the fact that God's most ready to forgive us. But he gives us a bit of a plan here now and a strategy that's more than just abstract. You know, when it comes to this, I want some concrete things that I can do to maintain my strength and my walk with the Lord, especially if I know that I'm dealing with my sinful nature, the world, and demonic forces. I want to walk strong. I want to walk in him. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Well, take note of that. I've written these things to you so that it could provide for you something that would prevent you from sinning. Well, writing these things to you, obviously, is Holy Scripture. This is the Apostle John writing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but I believe it has a broader application because it's all of Scripture. You can say like David said, thy word have I hidden in my heart so I won't sin against you. God's word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it can give us the power with that sword to contend with these areas. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. Or we can consider the fact that God will empower us by his Holy Spirit to walk in truth. And Jesus said in John 17 and verse 17, Father, sanctify them. In other words, set them apart from the temptations of this world, from evil and darkness and demonic influence, sanctify them by truth. Thy word is truth. So God's word, as you meditate on it, personalize it, internalize it, memorize it. I rejoice that the most read book on planet earth is the Bible, but the most memorized book is the Quran. When you dialogue and witness with a Muslim, they have such a command of the Quran, the surahs, the chapters that they have committed to memory. I would never encourage us to just simply do it academically to increase your biblical literacy, but I would say to you personally and relationally, get into the word of God and ask the Lord to give you some scriptures that deal specifically with a particular temptation that you're battling with. Get the word, again, internalize it, personalize it, memorize it, and then do like Jesus did in the Gospel of Matthew chapter four and said, it is written. I know the certain sins that can easily get the better of me. And so I've memorized scriptures so that when that battle begins with my own flesh, my sinful nature, or demonic forces, or the enticement of the world, I can say, it is written. And it's not robotic. It's not just mechanical. It's relational. The intimacy of God's word being a strength and a power to me to be released. So, my little children, these things I've written to you, Holy Scripture, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
that we have the hope of knowing that if we do stumble and we do fall, we don't have to stay there and lose the war. We can get back up. We've lost a battle. Let's learn from it. Now, God, make me strong in this area of my life. I receive your forgiveness. Now, before we park there, it's interesting that in the very same epistle that's penned by the Apostle John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit will make a statement that sometimes is rather intimidating to Christians because they say, like we all say, you know, we, we have stumbled, we have fallen, we've sinned, but listen to this scripture now recorded in the very same letter penned by the Apostle John. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. Uh-oh. Does that disqualify everybody in the room? you're a believer. Whoever has been born of God, in other words, born again, does not sin for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Well, this sounds like a contradiction of thought. It doesn't sound consistent. Juxtaposed to one another, they just seem to collide. We just read a passage that says, and if we do sin, God's ready to forgive us. And now this passage says, you don't sin if you're a believer. Well, here's why when you're doing any kind of study of the Bible, which all of us should be, good students of the Bible, not just academic or cerebral, but relational, we say, wow, as a good student of the Bible, I'm going to make sure that I always read the entire context. That's why there's a, a hermeneutic. It's called a law or a principle of interpretation that makes sure that when you read a text, you read it in its context so you don't arrive at a pretext. So when you read a text, read it in its context so you don't arrive at a pretext, a falsehood, something that is not correct. Your conclusion is at variance with Holy Scripture. And so when you come to this, you have to look at the whole teaching of the entire epistle and all of the Word of God. Suddenly now floodlights are brought to what could be a little bit of an obscure portion of Scripture. It's illuminated by looking at other verses as lights being turned on, helping you then interpret what God is actually saying. And what he is saying is, I've equipped you with the ability not to sin because I've placed my seed on the inside of you. Yes, you deal with the sinful nature. It rises up and can succumb to a temptation. But I've placed my seed into you. That's not mystical or strange. That's an absolute reality of the seed of God is the godly nature he's put into you as a believer. Now that can rise up, and what you feed will lead. And if you allow your godly nature to dominate, then you will not sin. That is what he's challenging us with, the reality that God has placed his seed into you and into me, giving us the ability not to have to sin because you can rely upon the seed that he's placed on the inside of you to say, you know what? I'm gonna grow and develop and mature my godly nature so that it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And so when temptation comes, my godly nature, not the sinful nature, is gonna dominate. I'm gonna be dependent on him. Now that requires to make sure you have, you know, we, what do we used to call Wheaties? Anyone who's maybe 45, 50 years older? Wheaties is the breakfast of champions. If you don't know what I'm talking about, forget about it. But the breakfast of champions for us as believers is to heed what Jesus said in John 6, to partake of him. Remember he said, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. It sounds like an endorsement toward cannibalism. It, it sounds almost uh, 
uh, disturbing, but he's indicating the intensity of the intimacy has to be that you partake of me. You take me on the inside. The only way this works is I've got to be on the inside, not the outside. That's why it's not a religion, it's a relationship. And so we have to partake of him and we have to partake of his word. In Jeremiah, the picture that's given to us is he says, I ate the scroll of the Lord. I took it on the inside. And then in John 4, 34, Jesus says, to do the will of my father is meat to me, sustenance to me, bread, a meal to me. And so I realized, boy, each day, if I want to grow my, my godly nature to be strong and dominate over my sinful nature and in, in the context of temptation, then I've got to make sure that I eat of his presence. I partake of that. That's prayer. I look in Holy Scripture and, and, and personalize it. That's to partake of his word. And then once I discover his will, I'm going to engage my life in doing his will throughout the day. And that, again, is a meal to me. It's strength to me. It's sustenance to me. To do the will of my Father is meat to me. That will strengthen you and empower you. And that's why for us as a believer, we can say, I'm not going to overestimate myself. I know I'm vulnerable to certain temptations, just like you are. I don't know what it is for you. Is it jealousy? Envy, greed, materialism? Is it being prideful and arrogant? Is it being lustful, immoral? Is it expressing volatile, destructive anger? Now those are the sins of commission. There's also the sins of omission where we don't do certain things that God calls us to do. We disobey him. You know the area where you're vulnerable, where you're weak, and if you say, I want to shore that up, you see, I don't want to just fall into this idea that I'm free and I'm forgiven, but I'm not strong. You see, here's a dangerous formula. Sometimes you say, well, Galatians chapter 5, it says, you know, it was for freedom that Christ set me free, so I'm free. And in, this, in the Gospels, it says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So we capitalize on that reality. I'm free. And then in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, it says, you know, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I'm forgiven. And that's great. I applaud that. It is biblical. It's solid. It's clean. It's right. And it needs to be experienced. I am forgiven and I'm free. But Ephesians 6.10 says you've got to also be strong. And what happens sometimes in temptation is you zero in on the reality that I'm free and I'm forgiven. And then the devil goes quiet for a while because he wants you to misinterpret that your freedom and your forgiven means you're strong and you're not. And so when the temptation collides with you, all of a sudden you're hit, you fall over, and now you're disillusioned. You're wondering, what's going on? I was forgiven and I'm free. Why did I succumb to that temptation again? Why did I fall again in that area of my life? I'm disappointed, embarrassed, and disillusioned. Well, you have to understand, you're free and forgiven, but you're not strong. And you've got to get strong so that when the temptation comes, you're strong to meet that with the ability to say no because you've consistently said yes. James chapter 4 and verse 6 and 7 says, submit to God. That's your yes so that you might resist the devil. That's your no. But the prerequisite to being able to effectively say no is you've got to consistently say yes. 
And so when you say, yes, I submit and surrender to you, Lord, that you might empower me, now you're getting strong. And as a believer, you're not just forgiven, and I don't minimize that, and free, and I don't minimize that. I accentuate, though, the reality that you must also then say, and I am strong. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength that he will provide. It's a victory he gives to us. He puts his seed, he gives us the sword, and then God the Holy Spirit is given unto us. In John chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, it says, the Holy Spirit comes to lead you into truth. You see, if we become independent, self-reliant, I know our society is going to basically define maturity as the more independent you become, understandably. You move out of the house, you get your own bank account, and then you move back in, you go live in the basement, and you run out of money. <laughs> But the more independent you become, our society says, the more mature you've become. That's great. I'm not going to argue with that. But in the kingdom, your maturity is defined as how dependent you become upon God. And I know that that can rub us wrong if you adhere to the humanist manifesto where man is the measure of all things and you're born to be self-reliant and independent, that then that can rub against you. But if you say, no, I've been created like a plant to be in the soil of a relationship with God, and I'm not to be disconnected from that. My dependence upon him, like the roots to the soil, brings me life. And so I'm going to marvel at that reality and allow my roots to go deeper and deeper and deeper. He's provided for us the seed, that's the godly nature, to get stronger and stronger. He's provided the sword and the very example of our master in Matthew 4, when he says, it is written when contending with temptation. Get that scripture and have it ready in that particular area of your life that you battle with. Have a scripture. When I'm counseling with someone, they begin to articulate, a, and they're being vulnerable, and they give me a window into their soul, and they say, this is where I struggle so consistently and so intensely, and I have fallen so many times in this area. I will ask them, listen, I'm not here to condemn you. I want to see you strong now. Do you have a scripture? Why do I need? You need a scripture. It's your sword. How can you possibly go into a battle without a sword, a weapon? Do you have a scripture? And they say, well, I don't know. Listen, the Bible's replete with so many scriptures and promises in so many areas where we battle. So get that scripture. Get a multitude of scriptures. When I, when I dialogue with some uh, brilliant physicians, I'll say, wow, you have, a, you have such a command of so many different medicines and how they have to apply. And many of these physicians very humbly say, well, no, I've kind of, I kind of operate with about 20 or 30 main ones. I know the ones that work the best, and I've got them down pat, and that's when I... I uh, recommend them to my various patients. And I thought, that's, that's, I, I need to get down, you know, several scriptures that pertain to this particular harassment, this battle, this temptation, this area that wants to pull me into sin. You know, this is how temptation goes. It moves along very slowly. There's elements of deception that are involved in it. And it's very cunning, very sinister. But for you, it just moves along very slowly and slowly convinces you to walk down a path you ought not to be walking down and dismisses the idea of any consequence that comes with it. 
It's just like a fish. A fish doesn't see the doesn't it, it doesn't see the hook. It, it sees the bait, right? The mouse it sees the cheese. It doesn't see the trap, right? The bird sees the seed, not the cage. The bear sees the honey, not the clamp. Man sees the pleasure, not the pain. There's a point in our life where it moves from A, B, C, D, Z. That fast. You're just kind of moving along. And then all of a sudden, bam! Yep, that's why I only got four more sermons in me. It's about four more to go. That's it, Lord. <laughs> Man, did you catch that on video? I wasn't planning on doing that. Rewind. There we are. No temptation has overtaken you except that is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Now, this is not a trial. Any scholar, as they exudate this particular verse, will indicate both by the words employed and the context revealed, this is dealing with temptation. Not a trial. You know, I'm going through this difficult time. No, this is a temptation to do evil. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to all of us. And God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out. What's that way out? So that you can endure it. See, he'll provide an exit. But that exit, ironically and paradoxically, and almost the antithesis is it's an entrance. An entrance into what? An entrance into a greater dependence upon him. It doesn't mean you run away, you run to him. You see, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when it's talking about immorality, it says flee immorality. Some will say, oh, what a sign of weakness. Stand there and face it. No, a sign of wisdom. Wisdom, not weakness. Wisdom is to flee. And to flee where? To him. Because the exit becomes the entrance into a closer intimacy of dependence upon him. I depend upon you. See, you won't receive glory for this. Because you're saying, the only way I've got victory over this is through him, by him. It's not because I manned up and I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and I did it with my own willpower. Oh no. Maybe in some areas of your life, but not in the one that easily besets you. Absolute dependence upon him. I've seen some of my minister friends get themselves kind of in an arrogant position where they overestimate themselves and underestimate the enemy. That's the formula for stumbling. You overestimate yourself with pride. I'm okay, I can do it. I'm strong against any temptation. You get yourself in that position of overestimating yourself with pride and then underestimate your enemy. Ah, he's, you know, he's toothless. Jesus removed all his teeth. He's just gnawing away. Oh, no, don't do that. I'm not exalting Satan and demonic forces, but they're far more cunning 
And I've seen too many that have fallen. You can't go there. Don't overestimate yourself with pride. Don't underestimate the enemy with ignorance. But be sharp and say, here's where I'm going to be. I've got the seed in my life, the godly nature, because I've been born again. I've got the sword of the word of God in my hand, and I am filled and baptized and inundated with the Holy Spirit of God. Now you've got victory because your reliance is not on yourself, but upon him. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 says you're a temple of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. So he dwells on the inside of you empowering you to have victory where you could never do it within yourself. There's an anatomy to temptation. You see it in Genesis chapter 3 where there's a garden, a tree. I know there's a multitude of trees, but we're thinking of one particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and a choice. And God created an environment. I know Adam and Eve, they were innocent. Sometimes we wonder why he allowed the serpent to come and tempt but a state of innocence is one thing. A state of righteousness involves a choice. To engage their free will, they hear to hear God say no. You see, when he said no, it was really identifying his ownership over the garden. And it's his moment to say, listen, I love you. I will be a father to you. But I am supreme. The preeminence of Almighty God. And in this garden, have at it. Eat whatever you'd like but don't eat from that tree. The moment he says don't eat from that tree, he's identifying his lordship, his ownership of the garden. And that's where the conflict results. Because why? We all have a propensity to be independent. You know, I want to handle my time the way I want to handle my time. I want to handle my money, my resources, the way I want to. I'm going to handle my sexuality the way I want to handle my sexuality. I'm going to handle relationships, friendships, marriage, future decisions, the way I want to handle them. You might not articulate it that way, but on the inside, that's how you tick. That's how you operate. We can be so independent, and the devil loves to capitalize on that because your independence is a sign that you're separated from the only one, the source, that can maintain your strength and fulfilling your destiny in your life. And so when you look at this garden, it's an opportunity for you to hear the ownership, the lordship of God, and also the opportunity to deepen one's dependence upon him. You see, the Lord wanted them to move toward him, not away from him. When you look at the plan and the strategy of the enemy, the scripture will say the serpent was cunning. He's deceptive. He's masterful at presenting lies. He'll use Aristotelian logic, the transitive properties in the area of logic and philosophy, A and B and C, to get you to believe, yep, that's the way. I, I know God deals with everyone this way, but he's going he's gonna to cut a special deal for me. I'm going to be all right. And the question always comes, has God said this? Oh, we, oh remember this, please. The devil always sinks his teeth into your understanding of the character of God before he ever deals with God's commands in your life. He'll always assault the character of God as an indirect attack against the commands of God. Because if he can get a question in your head about God being good, consistent, 
faithful, steadfast, and you form a conclusion that he's distant, indifferent, ill-concerned, or he's kind of a fairy tale when it comes to morality or ethics, if he can get you to get into that understanding of the portrait, the image, the picture in your mind of God, and display him in that fashion, and you realize, not to yourself but others, that the character of God has been assaulted in your mind, that will have a direct connection to your obedience to his commands. So he goes to the character to get to the commands. And you'll end up disobeying him. And usually I'll ask the person, how do you see God in this area of your life? Because it's an issue of character, his character. Has God said, and we know also that came from that, you'll surely, you won't die. Believe a lie, something in you will die. They believe that, and they didn't see it or experience it instantaneously, obviously, but it was a progression. It's the first recorded lie in the Bible. God, from the devil, says, you'll surely not die. And he saw the tree, and it was good. It was pleasant to their eyes. Why, what's happening here? The tree of knowledge is not that God is against knowledge. There's some who attack Christianity and say, you guys, you know, you operate from the neck down. You're against the cerebral region, the mind. You're opposed to good reasoning and logic. Absolutely not. The scripture says to love the Lord with your whole mind. God's not opposed to knowledge. Oh, we're warned in 1 Corinthians 8 that knowledge can puff you up. It needs to serve you and not master you. You need to make sure that your knowledge base is, is enveloped by wisdom from God and that it's been sanctified set apart unto him. I agree with John Wesley, the great revivalist of the Methodist church in the 1700s who said, man left to reason alone will reason himself right to hell. So it has to be a reasoning that is yielded to God, submitted to God. The great theologian in the fourth century, Augustine said, God's given us these minds that we might think his thoughts. So I want my mind to be saturated with God's way of thinking. That's sanctified reasoning. That's good knowledge. God here is not opposed to knowledge. What it is an issue of is independence. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil means the moment they bit into that was they now say, we're the standard. We're the ones who will define what proper conduct, morality, and ethics are. They become the knowledge base for that. So they become independent of God in their assessment, their evaluation of how they should live. Their worldview now is distorted. From their perspective, it's their lens. I will define what's good. I will define what is evil. Tell me if you don't hear that in our culture. Be eclectic. Be open-minded. Be tolerant. Everybody has their choice of what they think is good or evil. That's because everybody's eaten from this tree. Independent of God. He's not opposed to knowledge. He just wants you to know he knows how you should live because he made you. He fashioned you. He created you. So he knows what's good for you and what's bad for you. He defines the morality and the ethics. And if we don't, I'm sorry, he does. He didn't get that from me. James chapter 1 and verse 14 and 15, but each one is tempted in his own, but, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. You see that independence, defining good and evil. 
Then when desire has conceived, what does that mean? It's on the inside. It gives birth to sin that comes on the outside. So whatever's in your heart will find its way to your hands. Whatever's in your heart will find its way to your feet. It gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, now it's big and it's strong. One thing to meet a little bear, it's another thing to meet a big bear. When it's full grown, it brings forth death. There's the warning. I step back and I say, well, what about these great men and women of God of the Old Testament? Were they shielded by something in their life? And you think of it. Did innocence shield Adam? It didn't. Lot, the Bible will say in the New Testament through the mouth of Peter, righteous Lot. So he's viewed as a just man. Being just, did that shield Lot? It didn't. Because in Genesis 19, he succumbed to drinking, drunkenness, and then what happened with his two daughters. It's appalling, I won't even say it publicly. It didn't shield him. Did miracle power shield Moses? It didn't. Because the scripture indicates that he had fallen into anger and God restricted him from going into the promised land. So, will strength shield you? Well, I talked about strength, but ultimately, no, not even that. Because it didn't do it for Samson. What about David? I think of David's devotion. He had a heart after God, but he fell into adultery and murder. So even his devotion didn't shield him. And wisdom, you'd say, wow, Solomon, I want to have the strength of Samson and the wisdom of Solomon. Did wisdom no. One of the saddest chapters in the Old Testament, the Tanakh, is 1 Kings 11. It says, Solomon, filled with wisdom, went after all the foreign deities of his wives, and his heart was no longer with God. Wow. His wisdom didn't shield him. The zeal and confidence and boldness that Peter had exhibited, it didn't shield him. We all know too well of his denial. So what will shield you? What will shield me? I've often asked that. I said, Lord, I thought my devotion could do it. Innocence, being just, strength, wisdom. Man, it didn't shield them. What will shield you and me? I believe this with all my heart, your surrender. The safest shield is you truly surrendering. Saying, God, I can't. I can't overcome in this area of my life. I just, I've tried, I've tried. Oh, this area, this area, but not this one. This is the one that just gets me all the time. I, I can't. Get consistent victory. What will shield you is your surrender. You saying, God, I can't. You can help me to let you. I know that I have the potential to fall. Instead of falling into sin, I want to fall into your arms. Now, I know this can sound really conceptual, 
it's hard to wrap a takeaway around it because you're talking about surrender. But it's something all of us can do from in our heart and saying, Lord, I want to acknowledge my absolute dependence upon you in this area of my life. That is the shield that you exhibited even in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because where the disciples fell asleep, you were surrendering. In a vulnerable moment, where you even said, if it be possible for this cup to pass for me, let it. But you didn't succumb to the temptation, you went to the cross. Because you surrendered. You acknowledged the presence of your Father empowering you. When Jesus taught us to pray, remember he said, you know, that lead us not into temptation. I think the better translation is to say, Lord, as you lead me, I won't enter into temptation. And that will be the way by which I'll be delivered from the evil one. There's something about you and I leaning in, leaning into him so that we can live out our faith. Now, 20 years ago, I did this illustration. I'm going to ask Jerry to come up. I, I felt in my heart, the Lord said, I want you to do it again. I want them to see this. This ultimate shield in your life, in my life, is a surrender that empowers us to be able to walk victoriously. I know I emphasized about getting strong, becoming wise, all of that, but I would be remiss, amiss, if I didn't say really the ultimate is your surrender and dependence on him. Jerry represents God, great security guard, but now he's God. I represent the believer. You all know what's coming, but I want you to see what happens when I say, Lord, I know, and I say this to you as your pastor, I know areas where I'm vulnerable. Some people come up to me, man, you never get tempted. You know, you're strong man of guys. Are you kidding? Temptation knocks on my door every day. I know that I'm vulnerable. Maybe all of us need to just revisit that reality and say, listen, we're vulnerable. That isn't dismissing all that God can give to us, but there, there has to come that point of acknowledgement. I'm vulnerable. I can fall. So if I know I have this propensity to fall, I know I've got the seed, I've got the sword, I've got the spirit, but I still know the reality of my sinful nature and the battle with the world and demonic forces and that sin that easily besets me. I know that I can fall, so Lord, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring the remedy of falling not into the temptation, but into your arms. And when we do that, we fall into his arms. Then it initiates our ability to walk. And to others, it sure looks awkward. I could imagine how awkward this looks to all of you. And the world is not going to give you any glory. I'll say, listen, I've got victory in my life. Like, yeah, well, why don't you stand up? Say, no, 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 no. I depend upon him to walk strong. My dependence is on him. Again, the world is going to look and mock you and say, what are you doing? I can't believe it. Stand up in your own power. No. No, I lean on my God because that's the source of my power. Source of my power comes by my connection to him, my dependence upon him. And an arrogant, 
prideful, independent world that's gone and eaten the entire apple, the entire fruit, because they don't really know if it was an apple. It comes out of the Latin, that's how they get it. They go and eat it, and they just go independent, completely on God. You know there's a scripture for what you just saw? We're about to sing it. Deuteronomy 33, verse 27. You didn't write it down. In two seconds, it's gone from your head. Deuteronomy 33, verse 27. It literally says this. Placing your life into the arms of God. Into the arms. Not hands. It doesn't use it there. It says arms of God. As a result of that, in the late 1800s, this song was penned, this famous hymn that we're about to sing. Leaning, leaning on his everlasting arms. The author of the song had received news of just devastating information that had been given to him of two deaths that had just occurred. He sat down and began to pen this song, writing the lyrics based on Deuteronomy 33 and verse 27. That my life is going to lean in on the everlasting arms of God. So let's stand together, can we? And with your whole heart, maybe just with your eyes closed, let this be your takeaway, your personal application of saying and dealing with temptation and the battle and all the different things I've shared. If there's anything you catch in this moment, I believe the Holy Spirit wants to drive in. Don't be independent, be dependent. If you're gonna fall, fall into my arms, in my arms, and I will empower you to walk out victoriously your Christian life.